Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to St. Matthew's this morning. Psalm 105 says, Give praise to the Lord our God. Proclaim his name. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. We get a chance to do that with our opening hymn, Tell Out My Soul. Please stand and let's sing. seated. Well, a warm welcome once again to St. Matthew's this morning with a slightly celebratory air feeling uh, this morning. We had a wedding here yesterday. Uh, Tom and Rachel uh, were joined together in marriage are now Mr. and Mrs. Fowler. I think that's right. Uh, Tom Fowler and Rachel Jamison, uh, members of our night church. Uh, welcome again. Uh, my name's Andrew Graham for our guests. We love having guests with us. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here and we're, we're glad to have you with us, whether it's here in the building or those of you who are joining us online for the first time. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, people have asked me a couple of times this morning, how are you feeling this morning, Andrew? And I've said, well, quite well, yes. No, I'm actually feeling really good, which is in contrast to a number of our staff members who are not feeling so well, including our senior minister, Bruce uh, Clark, who came down with COVID late last week. Uh, so he won't be around today. And um, Rhonda will be leading in prayer for him and, and for others a little later in the morning. Uh, this morning we're looking forward to our second week in the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus really casting a vision for what the kingdom he brings is like. And this morning 
we hear him calling disciples to be as salt, to be as light in this world, wherever he's placed us in whatever communities we are. And Scott Petty will be bringing us that message. Uh, we'll also have an opportunity for the second of our contributing member spots this morning, uh, focusing the first of three uh, spots on serving, contributing by serving, uh, particularly today in pastoral care. But before we get, get to those things, we've got a time of prayer, uh, which includes reciting the beautiful Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is going to follow a confession of sins, and Psalm 103 calls us to remember the blessings of God. And right in the middle of that is God's generosity in forgiving those who turn to him in Christ. But we begin with a prayer of preparation, so please join me as we pray that together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And as we prepare to confess our sins, let's remember that when Jesus was asked at the greatest commandment, he said it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And there's a second commandment that's like it, love your neighbour as yourselves. They're very high standards, aren't they? And we all fall short. I'll just give you a moment to prepare yourself as we pray this prayer of confession. Together, almighty God, to whom we have only, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbour as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbour and to live for you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is wonderful to know the blessing of forgiveness in Christ. So let's read together Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the children has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all his work everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Amen. We're just going to hear now some news from St. Matthew's. Let's watch the screen.
Friends, as I mentioned uh, this morning, we, alongside our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, are um, coming up to the second of our contributing member spots. And for three weeks now, we'll be considering ways in which we can, tri- we, we can be contributing members by serving. And uh, over three weeks, we're going to be highlighting key ministry areas where there are opportunities to contribute. We'd love to fill some gaps there are on three of our teams. So we'll get to that today on on the area of pastoral care. So when it comes to pastoral care, the teaching of Jesus really is the the umbrella over our commitment to care for one another. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. Here's some numbers that will show you that God is at work helping us fulfil that command of Jesus. I've got the number four there. Uh, With borders opening up, the ESL team is doing, the English as a Second Language team is doing a great job of caring for people in our wider community who need more confidence in English as a foreign language to them. And they're running four English classes each week, uh, some on a Monday morning and one on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, The number 70 is the number of hearty, healthy meals, sit-down meals, that the Soup Kitchen team provides every Monday night for people who are doing it tough. A great service to them. 20 is the number of St Matthew's members who recently gave up seven Thursday mornings in, in, uh, in succession uh, to complete a pastoral care training, uh, training course to enhance the gifts that they already have for serving by caring. And 900 is the number of people over the last three or four months from our wider community who've come along to funeral services that we've run here for members of the wider community, not members of St Matthew's, to hear why there is reason for hope and comfort in the face of loss and grief. I think they're interesting numbers. And there are some other numbers I could put in front of you, but so many expressions of care can't be counted, uh, can't be quantified or measured. Just think, though, of the cumulative effect of the little kindnesses that are shown across a Sunday here on St Matthew's, merely by turning up to be present with people you're committed to, but also through kind greetings and through listening as others speak. Think about the additional effect of the commitment and understanding that that comes from being a part of one of our growth groups. They really are the the engine room of pastoral care at St Matthew's. Or the amount of prayer and skilled counsel that's provided to members of our church and beyond uh, by the pastoral staff team. Or the love that's extended by members of St Matthew's every week to people around us in obedience to the command of Jesus. So God is at work in and through us here at St Matthew's. 
So this is a church which cares because God is at work amongst us. Right now, I want to highlight with you some opportunities where, where a number of people, we're looking for a number of people who can help bridge a gap uh, in a number of our key pastoral care teams across the church. Uh, in particular, we're highlighting, and you'll see this on the handout, three areas, the 8am pastoral care team, the ESL team, and the soup kitchen team. Now, Sally Mannion coordinates a little team here at, here at 8 o'clock church that, uh, that provides extra care uh, for especially some of our most senior and vulnerable and frail members. And uh, she's away at the moment, she's in Italy, uh, but she sent this message for us so that we could understand the opportunities that are there to care for some of our more senior brothers and sisters. So we're putting out that call right across St Matthews today. Sally, by the way, is doing a wonderful job of coordinating that little team, but there is extra help needed. Might be that you could provide some of that help. Uh, in the ESL team, uh, we're looking for one extra ESL teacher at the moment. Mark Welling, who, who's coordinating ESL, uh, has said that, look, if you're not quite sure whether you might be able to do that, just come along one week, uh, join in one of the classes, and there's some extra training that's available. Mark did it last year as he was preparing to coordinate that work, uh, six lots of two hours online. Uh, we're also looking for one or two helpers on the ESL team. Uh, and at Soup Kitchen, uh, they're doing a great job, but we really need one more cook each month. Uh, so if you're in a position where you might be able to help on that front, uh, please let us know. Di Aitken, who coordinates that work, would love to hear from you. What I'm going to get, get you to do now is, if you've got a moment, if, if, if one of those things 
really grabs your, um, your imagination, we would love to know. And you could fill out that, car, that, um, that flyer and get it to me before you leave today. I'd love to hear from you and we'll make sure someone gets back to you. But of course, there might be other things in the pastoral care space that you think, well, I'd love to have a go at that or find out more about it. You could also let us know by, by um, getting that handout back to me. So thanks for, for listening to that. We're going to now bring things before God in prayer. I'll ask Rhonda to come forward. Thank you. Let's pray to the God who listens and the God who loves us. Heavenly Father, your hands created heaven and earth, and yet you reached them out to draw us closer to you. Thank you that you listen to our prayers and that you hear us now as we pray. Father, we grieve as we hear about continuing conflicts around the world, particularly in Ukraine, May your kingdom come and your will be done. Bring peace to those who need peace, reconciliation to those who need reconciliation, and comfort to all who don't know what tomorrow will bring. We ask for you to be with all, especially children who are suffering, for those who are anxious and fearful and don't know where to go, and for those who are injured and bereaved. Lord, may they soon have peace. Father, I pray for Christians in these situations that they might be beacons of light, that they might love the people around them and that they might speak your words so that others might turn to you. I'm just going to pray for David Fashon, who, who works with SIM Missionary Organisation. Thank you for the many years of faithfully fostering gospel work around the world that he's been involved in. We pray for wisdom and discernment in two things, in following up people inquiring about serving, serving in ministry and in a conversation that he's had with a young family who need to make a decision about the location of a new ministry in Central, in, in continental Asia. We pray that they'll be careful and wise as they consider their future. And thank you that their hearts long for others to know you and we ask you might bless these desires and give them fruitful work to do. Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for our ministry team who are so faithful in teaching us and in caring for us and in considering us. I do pray for Bruce today as he's got COVID. I pray that you might be present with him. I pray that he might uh, recover quickly and I pray that this COVID will not spread through the, the staff team. Thank you that you're in control of all circumstances, even that. Father, I pray for the pastoral care ministry that we've just heard about. pray that more and more as a church we will love one another and look for opportunities to love one another as Christ has loved us. We ask that God, that you will bridge the current gaps in the ministry teams that serve. We pray for our frail aged brothers and sisters in our church family 
for those who are lonely and isolated and unable to come to church. We pray that you might raise up people who will visit them, who will um, offer to bring them to church, and who will be a, a bit of joy and your, your presence to them. We pray for our outreach in the, the wider community. Pray for those who are doing it tough with the soup kitchen and our care for them. And we pray for those who need to grow in confidence in, as English speakers. We pray that in all these ministries we'll be other person-centred and seek to bring your love to those who are lost or isolated for some reason. Father, this morning I pray for Peggy Long as she goes overseas this week for a month. I pray that you'll keep her safe and that you might give her loving relationships with the people that she's in contact with and that she might be a beacon of light to, the, to her family and her friends while she's there. I want to bring before you a family that go to 10 o'clock church, Aidan and Hannah Hislop, particularly their son, William. Strengthen and sustain them as they manage William's significant health challenges. We pray the doctors will find treatment so that he could be healed and be free to attend preschool and other gatherings with children. Just take a minute for us to pray for those people in our own hearts who we know that are in need. Lord God, we thank you for the enormous blessing it is to know you. We thank you for the sure hope we have of eternal life for those people who trust in you. We thank you now to you who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within us. To you be the glory in the church in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please stand as we sing our offertory hymn.
Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. And you can find this on page 969 of the Church Bibles. I'll give you a moment to, to find that. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heaven. Well, good morning, everyone. Excellent. Keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5 while I get set up. Alrighty. thing that churches do, they organise the meal roster. When Christians don't know what else to do, how else to help, we cook, right? When we're out of ideas, Christians start chopping and frying and baking. It's just what we do. So we were the um, very grateful recipients of a bunch of meals from kind people who wanted to relieve us of the chore of cooking when everything else was a bit chaotic. I think that my nostrils might have been napalmed from changing newborn nappies, but I remember sitting at the dining table eating one of these meals thinking, what is this? It looks like food, but it tastes like nothing. It has substance, but it has literally no taste. What flavour is this, honey? I think it's water flavour. And that night, I, uh, I rifled through our spice rack, which had about 24 different little jars, 19 of which had never ever been used and had been out of date for seven years or so, and I struck gold, I found a little elixir of flavour, a jar of hope in a sea of bland, Master Foods chilli flakes. I wouldn't say it ushered in, you know, a, a new age or the kingdom coming or anything like that, but it rescued me from bland that evening 
because it had flavour, right? It had distinct taste. And so if you come over to my place to this very day, you will find a little jar of Masterpiece Chili Flakes somewhere very close to the dining room table. Now today, uh, as you heard Larry read, Jesus says his disciples are salt of the earth. What does he mean by that? Do we just add a bit of kind of gospel flavour to the world or redeem the world with the aroma of Christ or something like that? And he also describes his disciples as the light of the world and a city or a town on a hill. So what contribution does that make to our understanding? And how do we live as salt and light in the world? What impact will that have upon the world? And what connection does any of this have to the Old Testament law and prophets? Because Jesus seems to think there's a connection there, doesn't he? Well, these are the questions we need to work out together today as we unpack the second part of our Kingdom Calling series from Jesus' magnificent Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc. Uh, and we saw that Jesus' disciples were upside-down people living in an upside-down kingdom, kingdom of heaven. And that kind of upside-down idea, if you can see it, is sort of reflected in the artwork attached to this series but really it means that Jesus' disciples are different. They're different. We've got a different idea of what it means to be blessed, uh, a different way of living in this world. And we'll continue to explore that idea today as we work out what salt and light and prophets and the law and pen strokes and surpassing righteousness have to do with life in the kingdom of heaven. So let's first then go to salt and light. Very familiar but evocative word pictures that Jesus uses in that first little chunk. Now, if you go in your Bibles, back up to, to chapter 5, verse 1, first verse in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Matthew draws a distinction between crowds who were there and the disciples whom Jesus was teaching. It's a very important distinction to make. For you, he says to the disciples in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. Right, it's a familiar phrase, isn't it? What does he mean by them? Because if you describe someone as salt of the earth in our culture, we mean an unpretentious person, uh, down to earth, you know, honest, good natured, big hearted, looks after people, maybe rough edges, enjoys a joke and probably a beer as well. I mean, dressing up for these folks means putting on a shirt, right? Is that what Jesus means by the phrase, you're the salt of the earth? Well, not really. In, in his culture, salt had multiple functions. It was preservative that stopped meat from rotting, which still has that function today. It was something you could use to sabotage your neighbor's crops by spreading it over their fields. So handy stuff. What do you think he really means when he says, we as his disciples are salt of the earth? Well, the key is in the next part of verse 13. Next part of verse 13. Let's read it together. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So it's very tempting for us to think Jesus is drawing out one particular usage of salt, as if to say, salt keeps things from rotting, so you Christians be Christians and it'll stop the decay of society. Or salt gives things flavour, so you Christians... Be Christians and you'll add a bit of spice to society. I think what Jesus is really saying is reinforcing what he said in the Beatitudes we looked at last week. Be distinctive. Be blessed in an upside down way. Be poor in spirit, not sure in spirit. 
You know, mourn at the sin in your life and in our culture rather than celebrate it. Be humble, not a humble bragger, and so on. Because if you are, that will have a distinctive impact in our world. That impact might draw persecution, as we saw last week, might also draw out other things. But if you're not distinctive, there'll be no impact. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that you're good for nothing, but Jesus says that if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. It's, it's a strong idea, isn't it? And as he moves to verse 14, you get a better feel for how Jesus is kind of developing the idea. You are the light of the world. A town or a city on a hill cannot be hidden. When we started the Sermon on the Mount last week with Beatitudes, we said they were, they were kingdom behaviours. They were ethics that belonged to disciples, insiders of the kingdom of heaven. But look closely in verse 13 and 14. Jesus doesn't say, you are salt of the kingdom. He doesn't say, you are the light of the kingdom. He doesn't talk about a town in a kingdom, does he? Listen carefully. Salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill. They're not just kingdom ethics to be practiced in splendid isolation by us in ivory towers. Those beatitudes are kind of kingdom ethics to be taught and practiced in the midst of a sinful world. And you don't do them for show. But man, let me tell you, they will get noticed. If you ever went on a trip to Canberra, or maybe the snow, or home from Canberra or the snow, especially after darkness had fallen, you might remember that along that kind of lonely inky highway would emerge perched atop a very tall pole, the illuminated yellow M of Goldman Mackers. Now it's not, not quite the same now that I've cut the bypass through but if you'd done that trip you'd remember this sign. Back in the day you would round a corner from miles away and there it would be kind of floating in the night. It was a comforting sight. It's a sign of civilization, as if the thought of 14-year-olds frying ground horse meat on unclean grills was some high point of culture rather than the ballet or opera or Shakespeare, but there it was. And if you ever made that journey, you would remember that very welcome sight. It could be seen for miles from either direction. You are the light of the world, says Jesus. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the darkness of night, and I reckon Jesus' audience would be way more familiar with that idea than us, who are used to having unlimited wattage uh, of electric power at our fingertips. He says, Christians, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. You're a, you're a neon arch in the night sky, which of course is what Old Testament Israel, the kingdom of Israel was always meant to be, but, but now it's Jesus' disciples in the kingdom of heaven who are the light of the world. So where the darkness of the world is sin, we represent something distinctive, provided we are distinctive with our gospel living. Where the darkness of the world is ignorance of God and truly spiritual things, we signal something distinctive, provided we are distinctive with our gospel knowledge. And we do this in view of our neighbours rather than privately, just as you would put a light on a stand rather than under a bowl where it would benefit no one and eventually snuff out. And here's what will happen if we as disciples of Jesus, members of the kingdom of heaven at Jesus' gracious invitation, live out the Beatitudes. Here's what will happen if we live out those upside-down ethics of 
spiritual poverty and humility and meekness and mercy and forgiveness and moral purity in a world that's heading the opposite direction. Though we don't do it for the attention of others, it will draw the attention for others. It will draw the persecution of others like we saw last week. But it might also draw out the praise of God. Let's read verse 16 together. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Kingdom disciples who live out their distinctive kingdom calling will attract persecution. But you know what? We might also attract direct praises towards God. And you'll see there in verse 16, Jesus references good deeds. So it's going to be more about our walk than our talk, but it's got to involve our talk in some way because people have got to know that what we do or we do what we do because we're disciples of Jesus, because we really love God. Otherwise, people might just praise us and think that we're terrific, salt of the earth, honest, unpretentious Aussies rather than members of the kingdom of heaven, upside-down people in an upside-down kingdom. And I reckon um, you and I typically think about good deeds in terms of just our personal kind of morality, you know, like our, our not cheating or lying or our working diligently whilst acting kindly towards our work colleagues or our um, not gossiping, whatever it might be. But you know what? It, in addition to our service in ministry and church, it could also include our community involvement or um, our social justice initiatives, the way that so many of us sit on boards of charities or schools uh, and the way we somehow address a lack in our community in one way or another. And I think, you know, you ought to be thanked for doing that, for letting your light shine before people in the knowledge that some are going to have a crack at you and yet others might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. A lot has been made of the Andrew Thorburn Essendon thing, and it really has shocked us, hasn't it, I think? Less has been made of the church association which triggered it all, but the church in question, City on a Hill in Melbourne, takes their name from these verses in Matthew 5. And uh, they're not a controversial church at all. They're, they're completely orthodox in terms of beliefs, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church, fine people who are sensitive to their culture, they're very sharp in their communication, and they're imaginative in their aesthetics. I mean, basically, they do everything we try to do, but better, in a much tougher environment than ours. And I wonder if, along with the hostility that they've experienced these past few weeks, whether some people have listened into City on a Hill and sensed their really active concern for the people of Mel Melbourne, as well as their courage under fire, and in one way or another have glorified God. In fact, I'd be very surprised if that hadn't happened somehow, for they have let their light shine in Melbourne. The salt of the earth, light of the world, and the city on a hill. Now, friends, today's passage, it's a bit of a bridge, actually. The, the salt and light bit in verses 13 to 16 looks back towards the Beatitudes at the very beginning, the old and new stuff in verses 17 to 20 looks ahead to Jesus' specific teaching about a whole bunch of areas that follow. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount recently, you'll recall that six times by the end of chapter 5, Jesus says something like this, You've heard that it was said, but now I tell you. And it's tempting to think Jesus is sort of wiping away the Old Testament commands, introducing a new ethical framework. Now, here's a pains here to say that's the very last thing he's doing. 
He's saying that the new really is the old. Have a look at verse 17 with me. Do not think, says Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's kind of saying the new is really the old. It's sad to me um, that as Christians, and maybe I'm not referencing our, our congregation in particular, but in general, as Christians, we pay relatively little attention to the three quarters of our Bibles, that is the Old Testament. I reckon we, we read it like this. Don't know that page. Yeah, I won't read that one. Uh, nah. Well, that's a bit bigger than I thought. Uh, do you know what? I'm just going to look up John 3, John 3 on my phone. By the way, if you're stressed, that's just a thesaurus that I nicked from the office on the way in. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it, when we um, kind of neglect the first three quarters of our Bibles because that's the Bible that Jesus had. And that's the, the Bible that Jesus says he came to fulfill in today's reading. He came to fulfill the Old Testament or the law and the prophets as he calls it here rather than abolish it. You know, we, um, we tend to think the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about grace. Or we say the God of the Old Testament, he was angry and judgmental. But Jesus of the New Testament is loving and kind. And the Old Testament is all about external observances. And the New Testament is all about the heart. What fools we are. For grace abounds in the Old Testament and law and instruction abounds in the New. I mean, what do you think Sermon on the Mount is? It's all instruction, isn't it? And it's in the Old Testament that teaches us that God is slow to anger and abounding in love like we recited in Psalm 103. And it's Deuteronomy that first tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and haven't you ever read the judgment of Jesus in Revelation, the last book of the Bible? So Jesus doesn't stand in contrast to the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament because he is the God of the Old Testament. And his teaching is not in contrast with Old Testament teaching. It's in continuity with Old Testament teaching. It's continuity more than contrast. It's fulfillment rather than annulment. Not the least pen stroke, right? Not even those funny little squiggles that distinguish between letters and sounds in ancient scripts will be wiped away. He will fulfill it all. It is fulfilled in him, in Jesus. And I would encourage you to think broadly about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Most simply, of course, he fulfills prophetic expectations about a coming Messiah by being that coming Messiah, the long-awaited King. And he fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system by being the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin when he died on the cross in our place, so we no longer need to sacrifice animals uh, on the altar in the temple. And he fulfills the ethical or moral commands of the Old Testament by being the only one who lived up to its requirements perfectly. And he was a true Adam who lived in obedience to God where the first Adam failed to do so. Do you remember when Jesus wandered in the wilderness and was offered food by Satan? It's meant to, to heighten our expectations 
raising the question in our imagination, would this man be a true human who walked with God in the midst of temptation, or would he give in like Adam did? And so Jesus' obedience fulfills the expectations attached to the first human. So we can say Jesus is the true human made in the image of God. Or think in that same incident as Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 days, highly reminiscent of Old Testament Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, heightening our expectation, raising the question in our imagination, would Jesus be a true Israelite who walked with God or would he grumble and turn away from God like the first generation of Israelites did? But we see in his obedience to God in the desert, he fulfills the expectation attached to Israel originally. Jesus is the true Israelite. When we read of the failings of the kings of Israel, it makes us yearn for the coming of a perfect king. When we read of the waywardness of the people of God in the Old Testament, it makes us yearn for somebody who would turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and so on and so on and so on. At least it ought to, but it's only going to if we read and learn and know our Old Testaments. And so whenever we read a passage in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, as Jesus calls it here, in addition to working out the question, you know, what sort of literature is it? It's a very important question to ask. You know, is it a description of God? Is it a command from Him? What is it? In addition to working out what it meant for the original hearers, which is essential before you can work out what it means for us, you've got to also ask the question, how does this passage prepare me for the coming of Jesus my Lord? What prophecy does it predict? What yearning within me does it evoke? What pattern does it set up? What expectation does it create that he and only he fulfills? The Old Testament is not only about Jesus, but in some way, it's all about him. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, which he does in many wonderful and wise ways. And not only does Jesus himself fulfill the law and the prophets, we discover in the last two verses that his teaching also fulfills the Old Testament rather than cancelling it and starting anew. And his teaching continues to apply to us. In fact, in verses 19 and 20 there, he makes some outrageous claims. You can be great in this kingdom of heaven, this upside-down kingdom full of upside-down people, by practicing Jesus' commands and teaching others to do the same. By the way, you can't pick and choose which ones to practice. He says even the little ones count. But nevertheless, Jesus says you can be great in the kingdom of heaven by taking his commands and putting them into practice. Well, that's something to give ourselves to, isn't it? Well, friends, if you're not aware of it, it's HSC time at the moment. 77,000 Year 12 kids giving their final exams a crack. I've got one of them in my household. In about six weeks' time, I think the results will come out. And then the league tables will be formulated which school outdoes every other school in the rest of the state. I know which one it is already. It's James Roos Agricultural High School in Carlingford because they always top the state. 
see that motto there? Gesta non verba. Do you know what it means? Deeds, not words. Killer, aren't they? I mean, other selective high schools like Sydney Boys High, North Sydney Girls, they might come close. They won't topple James Roos. They always win. They've got the smartest kids. They've got the best systems. They've got the most competitive environment. Now, imagine I said to a bunch of waxhead surfy kids from the northern beaches, look like this. <laughs> it's a ridiculous haircut, isn't it? <laughs> imagine I said to him right before the English paper, Son, you've got to beat the James Roos kids or you're going to die. I mean, it's a task not hard to understand. Beat James Bruce, James Roos, or you're a goner. And you think, man, did you even say that? Because that is what it sounds like as Jesus finishes the section in verse 20. Let's read it together. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How could these hillbilly disciples on the side of a mountain in Galilee to the north of Israel possibly compete with the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the area of pursuing righteousness? I mean, those guys were the pros, smartest guys, best systems, most competitive environment. How can country disciples... Match that. Well, I guess by not matching the Pharisees at their own game, but by surpassing them, by attending to the heart, which was always the interest of the Old Testament commands, not just the externals, by obeying in their spirits to the glory of God, rather than just an obsession with outward appearances to the glory of man. And that's where Jesus will go next in the area of relationships and sex and marriage and truthfulness and revenge. And this surpassing righteousness, like greater than the Pharisees, which is fitting for us as kingdom disciples, it will drive us well beyond the rigid external righteousness of the Pharisees because it's going to engage our hearts. And it will drive us right back to the very first beatitude, poverty of spirit, because we'll realize our complete inability to do that in ourselves and our utter dependence on the forgiveness of Jesus and the empowering presence of God's grace in our lives. That's what it will involve to practice Jesus' commands and pursue Jesus' righteousness. It's the task before us as his disciples. It can only be done in his strength. And so Jesus both pushes us forward and he drives us back to the very beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. And so as we finish, we see that Jesus is both brilliant and beautiful and his kingdom is upside down and yet quite wonderful. Friends, why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? But being a part of it, let your kingdom light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask that you might be at work in us to live as kingdom disciples, not for our own glory, but with great perseverance that people might see our kingdom lights shine and they might be drawn to praise you.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing our final hymn now. Let's stand and sing together. finished uh, this morning. I'll just remind you of those um, opportunities to serve. I'd love to receive a number of these uh, from you. I'd also love it if you'd be praying for these three weeks where we're profiling areas of opportunity in key ministries where there's gaps to be filled. Next week we're looking at kids church and the week after behind the scenes ministry. 
Uh, a couple of months ago, we as a staff team had a look at all of our ministries, and these were the three areas, pastoral care, kids' church, and behind-the-scenes ministry, where it would make a really big difference if we could fill those gaps. So could you make that a matter of prayer as well? But I'd love to get a few of these this morning. Well, it's been wonderful, hasn't it, to hear the next segment of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I hope you're looking forward to these next weeks to come when Jesus will help us understand how it is actually possible to have a, a righteousness that surpasses even people devoted to religion like the Pharisees were, surpasses them, because we're kind of playing a different game. It's not a game of show, it's a game of the heart following the magnificent, the beautiful Lord Jesus, being a part of his kingdom, being lights of the world, being the salt of the earth, being like a city on a hill. Let me read for you from Jude, Jude, uh, the end of Jude. Uh, Let's have the word of God ringing in our ears. Brothers and sisters, to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.
more of a more sustained playability, more of an atone issue. Yeah, and consistency of build quality as well, isn't it? Swires you can get a good one or a bad one. 